0: You're listening to a Broadmoor Podcast production. In this week's sermon, we had Dr. Neil Marsh taking us through Psalms 42 and 43. We pray that his vulnerability and response to what the Lord has taught him in this passage serves as a tool to help you draw closer to our God. Thank you, Brooks family. Hey, good morning. It's great to be with you today. Uh, grateful to be with you as our pastor is on a couple weeks of of vacation and this morning I get to to teach this morning and super excited uh almost almost exactly a year ago I stood here and taught on a different topic it was on healthy relationships and um talked about the idea of how vulnerability can be used in our biblical community to help each other to encourage each other to become more and more like Jesus um that morning um I want to draw two things to your mind, either as a reminder um, or just to let you know to go back and look at it. There was two things that morning. One was pretty funny at my expense, and the other one was something pretty sensitive. So the funny thing, we'll go back and look at that. If you remember, it's, this one's not worth going back and, to look at, but I was wearing a shirt that was way too tight. <laughs> yep, see, yeah. And uh, it was not supposed to be tucked in either, and it was on camera as we videoed our small group. And so I'm not going to say who said it, but someone said it looked like I had gerbils in my shirt. <laughs> not cool. I'm not going to mention your name, whoever said that. Um, it was a humbling morning for that reason alone. The other thing, though, that our small group did in our video, um, they were checking in on me about uh, my dad's journey with Alzheimer's. And, um, and really my fear that that was going to be part of my story. And that it was a sensitive moment. It was raw, um, and honestly, it didn't get better after that. Um, that morning, we didn't realize that my dad's exile in dementia um, would be ending just a few weeks later in August. And then, since then, our family has felt the, the floodwaters of grief and the rising tides and tidal waves of loss. Um, and so as I prepared to stand in front of you this morning and teach through Psalm 42 and 43, which is all about a broken soul and hope, um, I slowed down a little bit to revisit the state of my own soul right now. And, uh, and that slowing down resulted in me writing a letter to my dad. And so I can't really think of a clearer yet more painfully exposing way to begin our time in these two psalms and to share parts of that letter with you. Just portions, because I want you you to hear God's story in my loss and in my hope. And so I'm asking for you to be gracious as you listen, as I read portions of my letter to my dad. Dad, in 32 days, one year will have passed without you being near us, if you and I were sitting together today, we might be talking about the fact that you really were probably leaving us much sooner. So another way that I kind of think about this, Dad, is that in 32 days, one year will have passed since your physical body paused being alive. I say pause because I believe one day your new physical body, you'll be alive again. But I guess, honestly, you have a better vantage point of that than I do right now. But I guess for now, you're in your spiritual body and I'm just, I have questions. I can't imagine what your final moments here were like. Like, were you in pain? Were you aware of what was going on? Like, where, where were you really? What did you see? What did you see in us? Like, what's memory like right now for you? Dad, as I write this letter, I have so many questions scrolling through my mind. But we'll have time for that later on. I do have a few thoughts just to update you on a few things, though, since you've been gone. I'm grateful for the moves. I know you had no master plan as you accepted each of the transfers in your career. And based on what your mom described, each of those opportunities was a crisis of belief that required you to make decisions without knowing how God was going to work it out. From my perspective, though, I just want you to know those moves resulted in better options for me. I know it must have been hard to watch all of us struggle with transitions and losses and having to start new relationships. I just want to say thank you for making hard decisions and leading us well. Well done. I'm grateful for the games. I know this is kind of silly, but you were there, whether it was a board game on our living room floor or backyard neighborhood games. I don't have a single memory of those moments without you. Sometimes you literally stepped out of your truck arriving home late from work and we pulled you into something. I don't remember even stopping to ask if you were tired or needed a moment. You were present. By the way, I never could figure out how to hit your knuckleball. Mm, It was wicked. I miss your laugh. One of the final things I remember you and John and I doing the day we admitted you, um, to the nursing home was we bounced the ball back and forth. I had so much fun with you. I'm grateful for the events. I don't remember you missing any of the important events. You were present on my childhood baseball and football games and later in high school and show choir and all the important stuff after that. And I know things got more progressively more difficult as you had more responsibilities with your work, as you had to go from state to state and... You must have been exhausted, but you showed up. You just showed up. Thank you. I'm grateful for our drives together. I love the moments we shared during summers. As I worked in Collins with you at the terminal there, I remember uh, how much I enjoyed our rides together. Those moments, man, I had an hour with you, uninterrupted, just the two of us. I was becoming a man, and I had so many questions about you, your father, your childhood, and and what I later discovered was your own trauma and the losses you had. But the doors were locked, and we were driving about 60 miles an hour, and so you couldn't escape my curiosity and my questions. Years later, our road trip through Texas would become a personal highlight. I'm not sure if you knew this, but I had this grand idea that I was gonna ask you these really great questions, meaningful questions, and I was gonna get you to write down your answers in a journal I brought with us, because I wanted your stories and your handwriting, because I loved your handwriting. But by then you couldn't write anymore. or Maybe you couldn't hold your attention. So instead, you recorded, I recorded your stories on my phone. So now I have your stories in your voice rather than your handwriting. I'm sad that our last drives together included the morning we admitted you to the nursing home and then other times when you had to be admitted to psychiatric hospitals because you needed help. Dad, I'm asking for forgiveness too. I wanted to be so much more helpful than I ended up being for you and Mom. With my education and training and connections, I really wanted your story to be different. And in my pride, I wanted to be the hero in your story. But the way things played out in the end, I was nothing like a hero. and was simply a casualty. Like the rest of our family. Being with you in the end, it's a paradox, really, being with you for your final breaths. It was both an honor and a burden. I guess honor and burden are really faithful companions. So, last paragraph, Dad. Thank you for giving me a lovely family. I know we had broken pieces that had been redeemed in other storylines that are yet not to be restored. And I know the backstory you brought into your marriage and your role as a father was complicated, yet you delivered something different for us than you were given. When you could have stayed distant, you stepped up, you never gave up. You were obedient to what God was inviting you into. I miss you. I don't really miss your body and the brain. Like, as the disease progressed, Dad, I want you to know I was never angry at you for that and I was never frustrated, but I was really sad. I miss your presence and your advice. The last several years were lonely for me. You were unable to pursue me or initiate conversations with me. You were unable to father me. I missed you checking in. I missed I missed looking into your blue eyes and being seen by you the way a son is seen by his father. I miss someone being proud of me. Dad, I don't want the disease that you endured, but I do want, this is what I do want, I want to learn how to spend the rest of my life being seen by my heavenly father, the way a son is seen by his father. I love you. Thank you for letting me share that with you. Um, I know there's no way. Um, I know there's a way of knowing uh, where everyone else in the room is at the soul level right now. Um, you may be sitting here this morning and that story does nothing. It's not a connection point that you have at all. You haven't experienced that, that kind of loss. But maybe your story includes abandonment from a friend or a spouse Maybe it's the painful loss of your career or health. Maybe the, the loss of a dream of children because of miscarriage and infertility. Maybe you find your soul broken because um, one of your family members, a child, is, is living and engaging a lifestyle right now that you have no idea how to engage and you feel helpless and it's making you question your parenting and your faith and you just, you don't know how to love in a way that Jesus would love and you're in a bind and you're, you're lost See, I believe our Heavenly Father intimately knows we land here, that the pain we experience puts us in this kind of turmoil. Our God is not surprised when our souls break wide open. He's not shocked when we experience trauma that redefines years of our lives or generations of our family. not surprised at all. It's not lost on God that we, his adopted sons and daughters as the church, we live in conflict and turmoil because we live in something that is right now, And not yet. So this morning, we're going to focus on God's story as the rescuer of our broken yet hopeful souls through Psalm 42 and 43. The psalmist of these psalms gives us an incredible gift. He gave it to his initial audience and he gives it to us today in these psalms. He he has a chorus that he brings forefront three times. I'm going to read it to you right now. It'll be in Psalm 42, 5. It reads this way. Why are you cast down, O my soul, and why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. Now this one repeated chorus, it separates our scripture this morning into three sections. And so I'm going to give you three words I want you to write down or hold on to, because we're going to come back to these. Three words Are these, thirst, enemy, and rescue. We're going to walk through these when Psalm 42 and 43, those three words. And again, as we do the application, thirst, enemy, and rescue. So as you look at your Bible this morning, turning to Psalm 42, you're going to notice a few things right away, and we're going to start going fast here, okay? So hang on, right fast, okay? First thing you're going to notice in the title, it says book two. Some of you may be sitting there right now looking at that going, I did not know there was a book one. Where is book two coming from, right? So big picture, here's the deal. Uh, The book of our worship songs that we call the Psalms, right, were masterfully organized into five books that would equip the Jewish nation to worship Yahweh during and after all the exiles that they experienced, right, that turned their relationship with and their worship of God upside down. And so this morning, we begin looking in book two of the Psalms, okay? Korah is another word you may see there. Korah is simply a person who is designated to lead in the worship, in the worship celebration, the ceremonies, right? And so Korah and his sons or and his team, they're responsible for these in about eight psalms in book two. The other word you're going to see there is maskal. Maskal simply is a title that means something like artfully crafted or artfully created and helping to bring understanding, okay? Last thing I want to draw your attention to is this. Every Sunday, we've gone over one psalm every time. we're doing something different this morning we're going to do two psalms and here's a reason why if you go down and look at psalm 43 there's not really a big heading shift right there right for that reason and because in a lot of the ancient manuscripts these two psalms go together this morning we're going to study them together as one worship song that is revolving around the idea of grief and a plea for rescue so As we read the first five verses of Psalm 42, we're going to hear the psalmist describe the condition of his soul. He's thirsty. Thirsty for what he once had and being close to God before the enemy stole it away from him. So, verse 1, here we go. As a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? So as as pen went to paper... A psalmist is in exile and he begins to write describing what he needs most. God, Elohim God, big, powerful, all creator of the universe, amazing sustainer of everything because he's alone and he's thirsty. So he asks his first question, when will I be near you again? In his mind, he probably has two options. One is he expects God to come in and rescue him and bring him right back to the temple again where he can worship as he thought he was supposed to do. Or he's going to die in exile and he'll be sitting at the feet of God for eternity. But he desires to be with God. He is thirsty. Verse 3, My tears have been my food day and night, while they say to me all the day long, Where is your God? So he continues, thirsty, and he says, The only thing keeping me going right now are my tears. His loneliness and his loss are on his mind constantly because they, the enemies. He would say, Are keeping him from God, harassing him, questioning, hey, if, if you're God so powerful, why are you here all alone? Don't miss this because the chasm between where he wants to be and where he is is growing. And it parallels the chasm between God as his rescuer and God as distant. Verse four, these things I remember as I pour out my soul, how I would go with the throng and lead them in procession to the house of God with glad shouts and songs of praise, a multitude keeping festival. And so in this moment of despair, he remembers. He remembers a better moment. He remembers uh, what he had. He remembers being with other lovers of God who are raising their hands in worship In a festival, a worship festival that God instructed and planned out for them to celebrate him, he remembers those moments. And in that awareness, then he shares his first chorus, which he will repeat two more times. And here it is. Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hoping God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. Now, the first few times I read this, I incorrectly read cast down as downcast. You may have done that also. Cast down here is better described as melting away. Melting away, broken, wrecked. And the word for turmoil is really more of a turbulent roar, a moaning, or a groaning. And so in this moment of clarity of his situation, he's all alone, his soul is melting away, the faith he thought had is nowhere to be found, and the only sound that comes out is a groan and he's ashamed that he couldn't be stronger than he is right now can you remember a similar moment in your life a phone call a letter a post, an email a late night conversation that forever changed the trajectory of your life and you were wrecked in that moment where was God? Where was your hope? In this moment, God felt silent to the psalmist. And so what do we see the psalmist do? He refocuses himself on hope. He doesn't fully understand how yet, but he believes Elohim will rescue him. Now here's the deal. He hasn't been rescued yet. His circumstances haven't changed. And yet he aims his wrecked soul towards hope towards belief and that chorus ends our first section in our psalms this morning a soul melting away thirsty for god let's look at the impact of enemies next verse is here my soul is cast down within me therefore i remember you from the land of jordan and of Hermon, from mount miser deep calls to deep at the roar of your waterfalls all your breakers and all your waves have gone over me by day the lord commands his steadfast love then at night his song is with me a prayer to the God of my life. Now, just like the first section, the verses here, he does a confession of the condition of his soul. Still thirsty, broken, melting away. Now, in my mind, I imagine this moment the psalmist is like looking out a window or the door, right? And is watching the sun retreat behind the mountains of his exiled land. And he remembers the stories of other mountains and rivers. He remembers on a mountain God providing a ram for Abraham rather than sacrificing his son. And he remembers God on a mountain providing covenant through the Ten Commandments. And he looks at the river and remembers, oh, my people's story of a new home, a promised land that we don't have yet, but they did. They crossed the river and got that. And for a moment, he sees it all. And then... He opens his eyes and realizes that's not where he's at right now. Nowhere like that. And God neither feels faithful, powerful, or has he provided anything for him. Instead, he feels all alone. Verse 9, I say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why do I go mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? As with a deadly wound in my bones, my adversaries taunt me while they say to me all the day long, where is your God? And so the darkness grows, more paralyzing as God remains silent. And so he still mourns, living between right now in pain and something not yet, which is to be rescued. And in that tension, he repeats his course for the second time. Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. Soul is thirsty. He's oppressed by his enemies. Let's listen to our next section, our last section for what it means to be rescued. Verse 1 of chapter 43 Vindicate me, O God, and defend my cause against an ungodly people. From the deceitful and unjust man, deliver me. In this worship song, the psalmist has been asking God questions that have been leading him up to this point a request, a plea. He makes this first of two please. God, take up for me against my enemies. I mean, you say you're just and you say you're right. If you love me, you would do this. Do something. For you are the God in whom I take refuge. Why have you rejected me? Why do I go about mourning? Because of the oppression of the enemy. He feels forgotten. Surely that's enough. No. He goes further. Not only does he believe that God has forgotten, he believes God has rejected him. So the final question for his refuge is God, why have you rejected me now? And so he brings the second plea to Elohim. God, if you would speak on my behalf, I could return to the temple just like before. That's what you told me. I had to be, I had to worship that way. Speak up for me. If you would do that, Father. If you would just guide me with your light and your truth. Verse 3 again, sending out your light and your truth. Let them lead me. Let them bring me to your holy hill and your dwelling. He simply wants to return to faithful living and intimate worship. He promises God, if you will direct me, if you will shepherd me home, then verse 4, then I will go to the altar of God. To God, my exceeding joy, and I will praise you with the lyre, God, my God. So he's dreaming and he's hoping. He imagines the joy of being near God just like before. And he imagines the praise that God would be worthy of if God would rescue him. And in this hope, he returns to the chorus for the third and final time. Why are you cast down, O oh my soul, and why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God. For I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. Now, unless I'm wrong, most of us us in this room are not exiled Jewish worship leaders. So the question we have to be asking is, so how does this apply to me? I'm asking it, how does this apply as an adult son who's walked alongside our family for 10 years with a father with Alzheimer's and he's passed away? is there a lesson here for me? Is there a truth that I can hold on to that brings hope from where I don't currently have it? Maybe for you, when you're sitting here reading this, I don't know your story. Fill in the blank. with season you're in, what do we do with this? In the moments we have remaining, let's go back through our three words one more time. Thirst, enemy, and rescue. See, generations after the psalmist writes this, generations after he is an exile. As God continues to be silent, the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, shows up in an unexpected way. And he dwells with his people. And he meets them where they are in their thirst. And we have a beautiful picture of this in John 7.37. There's a worship service going on and the Jewish priests are, are doing a water ceremony, pouring water. And, and they're asking the people, now you need to recite, recite Isaiah and beg for salvation as we're pouring the water. And it says in John 7, 37, that Jesus is there that day. And it says this, that he stood up and cried out, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. The creator and sustainer of the world shows up in a small worship setting. And as they're pouring the water, it says, hey, I'm here. I'm here to rescue you. You don't have to be thirsty anymore. Come, taste and see. Be satisfied. Drink from me. I am the living water. He was inviting them to be satisfied with something eternal, not the substitutes and the temporary things, the rituals and traditions that man makes up. He says, no, just come straight to me. I am the source. Church, we don't have to be thirsty anymore. I wonder if you ask the people who know you best. When they watch you in pain or struggle, how do they see you quenching your thirst? What do they notice? Do they see you filling it up with temporary things? Here's the deal. As I think about this for me and for us, what those around us who don't know Jesus most need from us, when we are in pain, because we will be in pain. They don't need to see us pretend it's all okay, like, yeah, I got it's good, I'm fine, right? They don't also need to see us trying to fill that thirst with temporary things like our, our debt, our wealth, substances, addictions, hiding from one another. They don't need to see that. What they need to see is us the followers of Jesus, they adopted sons and daughters, acknowledging our thirst and simply learning to sit with Jesus, bringing our pain and our questions and our struggles to him, acknowledging and going, I have all these things and I have hope. They need to see it and we need to experience it. We don't have to be thirsty anymore. We have the living water. Let's look at our enemy. Over 2,500 years ago in the art of war, Sun Tzu says this. He gave the wise advice, know your enemy. Over the generations, the followers of Jesus kind of colored in the lines of that statement as they identified what we now call the three enemies of the soul. And here they are. They haven't changed. We have Satan, the devil, our flesh, and the world. It is the same strategy from Genesis 3 on. We don't need to be surprised when the enemies attack. You may be sitting here and you go, and I'm tired and I'm beat up. That's your constant, how you feel in most seasons. I'm tired and I'm beat up. Well, the reality is that makes a lot of sense because we always have three enemies attacking us. And we need to know our enemies. So quickly, let's look at just the three right here real fast. Um, knowing our enemies... Um, The devil, the devil is the first enemy. He is the accuser and he plants lies in our heads. We should expect that, right? Our small group this past year started asking each other this question. As we hear each other talk about what we did in the week or the the conversations we had with people, the question around our table will be this, hey, Neil, when you did that, when you said that, let's talk about the the motives behind that. What What about that was righteous and pure and what about that was you being sinful arrogant prideful or afraid saying another way which of these things is coming from god and his truth and which of these things is coming from our enemy and creating an opportunity where we talk through and become students of those things our second enemy is the flesh the reality is we live in bodies that are broken jacked up and we create chaos and all the things that God has for us. What he would desire, we distort. Our broken flesh distorts all the good, amazing, pure things that God gives us over and over again. And when we make decisions and do things out of the flesh, out of our own power, we bear rotten fruit. And our Savior comes to us in the same way he is the water for our thirst. We see him now with the solution. He says, just stay connected to me. I'm the vine, you are the branches. Just sit still. Just sit and abide with me. Bring me your questions. Bring me your pain. Don't disconnect from me. Just let me love you. It's not about your performance, it's not how good you do on all the stuff. Just be still. Come to me. We're not built to keep going so fast. If you're the leader of a house, whether you're married or single, children, no children, I can't encourage you enough. I'm begging you, begging myself, let's continue to press in on establishing a rhythm of rest and abiding of Sabbath. We live in a broken body that cannot sustain the busyness and the distractions we live with every day. We must lead ourselves and our families to slow down and linger at the foot of Jesus, linger in his word, and just be present. Otherwise, we're using our own fuel and our own broken flesh to make all kinds of decisions, and we're going to create chaos everywhere we go. Last enemy is the world, it's our third enemy. Because of the deceptions of the devil and because of our sinfulness, and the way we distort and break things, we have shaped the world to our image rather than God's. And because of this, we have normalized a sinful society that now controls and attacks all humanity, and we're all casualties. Unfortunately, we believe that people are our enemies, and the people aren't enemies. The world is. Oh, church, let's beg God to change our minds and our hearts Soften our hearts so that we will practice mercy to those around us in this broken world. May we not, as we do so, be conformed by this world, but be transformed as Jesus gives us a new mind and a new heart to see people clearly as his image bears. I'm asking you, think now, what is something, one thing that's tethering you to this world that keeps you buying into a promise that this world will never deliver? Those are our three enemies. And we have hope because in Matthew chapter 5, we we see Jesus in his perfect life conquer those enemies. He did it for us. We see. He responds with the truth whenever Satan tempts him with things of the flesh, of the eyes, of the world. And Jesus' response is to quote, to bring back God's word already to Satan. We have three enemies. We don't need to be surprised, but we are not hopeless. Jesus conquered those enemies. Let's look at our last word this morning, rescue. See, throughout Jesus' perfect life and his perfect death and his resurrection, Jesus, being fully God and fully human, faced our same three enemies, right? And we have this beautiful picture I want to point out to you in John chapter twelve twenty seven, As Jesus is, is about to be arrested and about to be, go be crucified... I want you to hear the posture of Jesus when it comes to rescue. He says this, he prays to his father, now is my soul troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? No, but for this purpose, I have come to this hour. Jesus is, watch this, Jesus' plea for rescue in this moment, brethren, He could ask the Father to send angels to take him. That's not the plan. That's not his plea. Jesus' plea about rescue is for us. His plea for his own rescue is secondary to the mission, the plea for you and I to be rescued, to no longer thirst, and to no longer to continue to be beaten by our enemies. May we have the same heart for others where we are broken in desire not just a rescue from our pain, but that God would use our pain to rescue others. So that when we share our stories of pain and hope, they're invited to see a clearer picture of who God is and his rescue that he's offering. I wonder what would happen in our community if just the people in this room or watching online would have become so desperate for the rescue of others that we can't help but share our stories of brokenness and hope vulnerably to whoever God brings in front of us. You may find yourself this morning in turmoil. Your soul is melting, it's wrecked, and you're exhausted. That's exactly how the psalmist felt when he wrote his psalm. It's how I felt when my, I sat with my father. It's still how I felt when I wrote the letter to him. You are welcome this morning to bring those things. This is a safe place to bring those things, begin a conversation with someone else. You're not designed to have it all buttoned up and figured out. You're designed to be be known. Feel free to come down front as our church sings a song. If you want to wait till afterwards, we'll have people in the room out my left to your right. If you want to begin talking about that. Last thoughts. I wonder if you were writing a letter to your heavenly father today. I wonder in all honesty what your questions would be for him. What your plea would be. What you would say about your thirst for him and how the enemies you're struggling with and your need for rescue. I wonder... what it would be like for you in those moments of transparency and confession to be seen by the Father. To be seen in a way that a child is seen by the Father. Let's pray. Father, many of us are cast down. Our souls are in turmoil. And yet we come to you searching for hope, Not hope in ourselves, but hope for what you are, who you are. Father, you are our salvation, and we're learning to trust you more. In your name we pray, amen.